You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. It's the first episode of 2024, so I thought we'd start the year off with a bang and have a conversation with a brand new CEO of Curling Canada, who also happens to be a world and briar champion. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me this week. Once again, my name is Frank Rock. Happy New Year, everyone. Before starting today's show, I wanted to wish everyone a happy and healthy 2024. We start the new year off with Nolan Thiessen, who was recently named the new CEO of Curling Canada. Nolan and I discuss several topics of interest to Canadian curling fans, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Nolan, in 2015, I started this podcast, and that was the same year that you won your last Briar. If I told you back then that within a decade, you'd be the CEO of Curling Canada, what would have been your response? Highly unlikely. (laughs) Um, You know, as much as I, like, obviously have a passion for the game and I wanted to work in the sport and and give back and make it better, right? Like, you don't just get the CEO job immediately, right? Um, And... You know, at that time too, like, I think one of the biggest things I did, and, and I did this right when I first started talking to Kathy, was say like, hey, I don't know what I don't know, right? I want to learn the business of sport and I want to learn the business of curling. So, um, you know, I had a lot to learn and, and I got a lot of opportunities from from people at Curling Canada um, to, to let me learn, I guess, so to speak. So I'm just, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for the opportunity. I, I don't think I would have believed it back then, but um, you know, I think I'm ready now and I'm, I'm really excited, uh, really excited to kind of get down to work and with everybody and, and move this great game forward. Nolan, you just referenced Kathy Henderson, who took over the position of CEO at Curling Canada with a bunch of sports admin experience, but no history in the sport itself. You not only worked for the organization for a few years, but you've been around the sport for a few decades now since you've been a child, basically. Will knowing the sport and your organization serve you well? Or is there a part of you that would have liked to have come into this position with a fresh pair of eyes and not really knowing the sport and kind of working your way into understanding it better than having been within the sport for so long before taking over the position? No, I think, you know, you don't have to be a curler to be the CEO of Curling Canada. You know, you don't have to be a hockey player to be the CEO of Hockey Canada, right? I don't. I don't think it hurts me though, because I have, I have that knowledge. I've I've lived that part. Um, You know, I've also lived being a kid who walked down to the club, right? I've, um, you know, I've done lots of things at Curling Canada that, that didn't tie back to high performance. It didn't tie back to curling. It just, you know, it's the, the sport of curling. I think for me, um, it's the passion for the game, right? It's the passion for everything that we do. I mean, I see youth engagement programs that we do at events where there's kids that, you know, they get to experience curling for the first time and you see that wonder in their eyes, right? And then, and then, because I had that too. I was at, you know, the 93 Scotties and the 95 Worlds and sitting there going, oh, this is amazing. I, I think I need, to, I want to do this even more, Right it's that passion for everything and it's that passion for the power of sport I think is 
you know, the, the big thing, um, you know, for me, my knowledge of the game, I think is going to help me out, not necessarily just from like a knowledge of what it's like to play in a Briar or world championships. It's more so my knowledge of sort of the inner workings of the sport. And if you, you know, because there are changes that we have to make. And if we do make changes, you want to know what dominoes fall from that, right? So my knowledge of the game will kind of help with probably change management to be able to know um, more so what, what you know, what do we need to do when we're making this change to make sure everybody in the system feels heard and supported and, and kind of a part of the solution. Now, I typically spend a lot of time uh, on this podcast discussing uh, elite curling, and we'll get into that in a few minutes, uh, Nolan. But first, I want to ask you about curling at the local or grassroots level. Curling Canada has no say, really, in how local curling clubs do their business, but it's tough sledding right now for most clubs. They're dealing with decreasing membership, for the most part, and increasing operational costs, forcing them to, you know, basically forcing a lot of the clubs to get creative in how they generate revenue and uh, and having to do events that aren't always curling-related just to generate that revenue. How do you see Curling Canada expanding its role in helping local clubs? Well, I think for us, we're going to increase our investment in, in club development and member services. I think, you know, our working relationship with the member associations, right? Like the clubs are are members of the member associations that are members of Curling Canada. So, I mean, it's all tied together. I think our ability to kind of support our member associations and support the club level is huge. I think, yeah, there there is a lot of narrative of... Um, you know, clubs closing and and those types of things. You know, Vividata showed that curling um, participation was back up to pre-pandemic levels last year, right? Nobody talks about that, but there was 2.3 million people who curled at least once last year, um, which is the same number that there was pre-pandemic. Now, you know, the club experience and, um, you know, being a member of a club is is different, right? Um, you know, there's lots of people who will do a fun staff event, right? Where they curl and they say that they've curled for, you know, once they're maybe not a member of a club. You know, I think we want to work on on all of that. I think it just comes from investment, right? Like, I think we have to put money and human resources into that side of our business as well um, to just, and be able to create alignment with our member associations so that you know, we're, we're all kind of supporting this as well. Um, I think, um, you know, we want, we want there to be a strong grassroots club level. I think the club experience as well, I think forever, it used to be tied directly to sort of competitions, right? It seemed like almost anybody who entered a curling club played in a play down. Um, that's not the case anymore. It hasn't been the case for a long time and that's okay right? Like I think people can enter the club and, you know, their decision to pay their money to go to a club once a week and have that community experience or to curl with their partners or um, that is different than the competitive reasoning for somebody and the competitive motivation to go play. So um, we just have to figure out what those are, right? And, And there's no one answer. That's the other thing, right? I think everybody 
in always looks for sort of the magic bullet um, that is going to create utopia and that's just not reality so you just have to get in the weeds and we have to try things and we have to know that whatever curling experience we provide potentially in you know downtown toronto or 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 in a club in in edmonton is different than the experience that we're gonna provide in pilot mountain manitoba right um which i calling out specifically because that was where i was born so um but um you know i think those are those can those can be different and that's okay and we just need to kind of figure out what those are and, and provide that reason for people um to want to play our game it's no secret nolan that uh, diversity is a problem in the, the sport of curling now i can appreciate that gains are being made in some parts of the country but for the most part the membership at most clubs tends to look like me middle-aged white people who've been playing the sport for 20 30 40 years there's been a lot of talk about addressing the diversity problem in the sport i know there's been some committees and some symposiums etc that looked into it but as the incoming ceo how far up is diversity on your list of priorities? Totally. Um, you know, it's obviously a big um, topic for us and something that we want to kind of work on. Again, um, you know, a couple of years ago, with the leadership of Kathy and Danny, we create, you know, we built out and we did a changing the face of curling symposium, which it, it was a, it was a space for us to kind of just, talk about the problem right like i think there's a lot of people that are they they just immediately jump into well um you know we gotta get new canadians into our game we do but like what like what is the underlying reason for people to play our game and what what is it about our game when when you walk in the door of a of a club um or or a curling center and and why do you want to do it and is is there just an experience that they're not seeing and maybe maybe they have a different experience they want to have a different experience there but then still want to play the sport so then we just have to break down those barriers so that they have those those experiences um you know we hired dr rich norman right to you know he to help us out and and be a part of our our staff and our senior leadership to to discuss a lot of these topics I talk to Rich all the time and, and there's a lot of things from a future standpoint that, that we talk about and we want to try. Rich is really good too. Cause he's, he's very pragmatic in that he'll, he'll say like, look like, you know, the experience for, for maybe like a Sikh Canadian is going to be maybe different than an indigenous person in, you know, a different part of the country. Right. And so we just have to provide their experience that they enjoy it right like it's all about experiences it's about feelings it's about people going in and feeling welcomed and feeling a part of the sport right i think the other big piece of this that'll help us and again this is like a long-term strategy but you know us diving into the support of the wcf and their their ability to kind of expand the understanding and knowledge of the game across the globe will help us when people come to Canada, right? Because if someone's coming to Canada and they at least know about the game, like they know what curling is, they know we're the, we're the epicenter of it, they may be more, more willing to try it when they get here as opposed to us just kind of trying to introduce it when someone first comes to Canada. I think, 
you know, a base level of knowledge of more people across the globe of the game of curling will help Curling Canada as well. So that's where we have to partner with the WCF from a development standpoint and have more of the world know and understand and love this game because the world is small now and people people move around. And so when people come to Canada, you know, they're maybe more willing to do it. I mean, I know if I, I were to move someplace else, I mean, I did it, right? I moved I moved to Texas and I played in a curling bond spiel in Dallas, right? Like, because, you know, that that's my love. So I think that's, those, those are some of the things that we have to work on. But, you know, similar to what I talked about from a club standpoint, these are long-term things, right? These are the things we have to work on this year. These are the things we have to work on next year. And there's never, you know, it's never going to be, we've solved this. Um, this is just a part of the business of running sport that we are going to always have to do and we will always will need to do. So like for me, you know, this is just going to be a part of our business from here on out for as long as I'm here um, that that we need to concentrate on this um, and and really find strategies and try things and then learn from those and then try more things to drive growth. So, Nolan, many people in the Canadian curling community remember the quote-unquote good old days when Curling Canada events, specifically the Briar, would fill NHL-sized arenas all week. Now, that the reality is that those days are probably long gone. However, revenues generated at the Briar, the Scotties, and the Trials are still needed to offset the cost of your organization's different programs and others you'd like to create. What is the best path forward for significant events like the Briar and the Scotties to get them as close as possible to where they were 10, 15 years ago, specifically in the case of the Briar, where it was filling out any channel arenas throughout the week? Well, I mean, I don't think, I think we can always cherish what things were 10, 15 years ago. I don't think we have to sit there and say, you know, we have to do something that is, we have to return to 10, 15 years ago because like those are the old days. There's there's a reason they were they, the reason they were right. Things were different, and it's understanding the environment that is in front of you. I think there's a lot of talk out there about number of people that attend a Briar and a Scotties, and there isn't a lot of talk about the underlying business metrics that are curling Canada's events. And you know we've made a lot of changes in the last five or six years um, from our uh, competitive bid process, um, from our understanding um, and negotiating costs for various contracts to events that has enabled us to have more, um, I guess, stronger events, right? From a, from a financial standpoint, um, you know, it's not always what the top line revenue is. It's also what the bottom line profit is from the event that can be invested in other areas of the sport. So, um, you know, from our standpoint, we look at our events a little bit differently now, right? Like we don't, yeah, as you said, we don't, we, we don't go to the, the bigger NHL size buildings. It's also because they cost way more, right? Like those, those, like a rental cost on an NHL building is exponentially higher than, than what we could have for, you know, what we had last year in London or, or what we're going to have in Regina or Calgary this year. So, you know, it's, it's having an actual business plan around those and not just looking at it purely from a showcase number of bums and seats and comparing it to the 
what it was in 2005 or or 2010. So that being said, I mean, you know, we had almost 9,000 people in in Ottawa for for Brad's final round robin game against Nick on the Friday night. Um and uh and you know, we had I think 7500 in there for the final on uh on the closing uh on the final game. So um and that building was rocking, so I don't I think people want to shovel dirt on us. Um, I think that's, you know, an easy narrative. I think the way we look at the business of our season of champions is changing and we're trying to modernize it and we're trying to, uh, make sure that there's less, we're trying to de-risk it, I think a little bit too, because, uh, because as you said, it supports so much of our, uh, so much of what we do at Curling Canada. Now, other Curling Canada events that are important to the future growth of the sport in our country, Nolan, are the U18s and the Canadian Juniors, where the next generation of Canadian curlers get to experience competing in a national championship on arena ice and in front of crowds larger than they're used to. Now, I was at the Canadian U18 championships on my home club in Timmins, Ontario last season, and I, I know that the coaches and parents that were there and that were on site in Timmins were hopeful that Curling Canada would continue with expanded fields to the U18s and the Canadian Juniors, giving more young curlers in Canada a chance to play in a national championship. Is Curling Canada looking at reverting to the old system of one rep per provincial association at the national junior events, or might we see expanded fields stay as part of the program moving forward? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's actually interesting timing. We're going through a, a competitions review for, for all of our events other than sort of the Briar and the Scotties and where, and the trials, which we, we, um, you know, announced last spring sort of what the rest of the quadrennial was going to look like, but all of our, our championships and I wouldn't expect any changes next year, but, um, you know, looking at all of them and really trying to get to the base level of what is the principle of these events and then what are the friction points? Like what, what issues do we have here? And, and it did, does the structure of the event create any problems that are unforeseen? Right. So yeah, we're looking at all of that, but I mean, that was, you know, that was one of the reasons why we expanded the fields of those is because you know, a U18 championship is more of a developmental first opportunity to play at a national championship, that kind of, that sense of belonging, that sense of, you know, fun and that experience of getting on an airplane and flying somewhere and curling on an arena ice and meeting kids from other provinces and territories that's part of what keeps people involved. Right. And, um, you know, limiting that is limiting our talent pool. I think for us, we, you have to look at a long-term athlete development plan as like a giant funnel, right? Like as much as we end up getting to name one team at an Olympic trials, um, every four years, you know, that funnel needs to be way bigger at U18 and U21 and and all of that as you as you work your way down, right? So um for us it's it's how do you get how do you keep those friction points and that out of the out of the game? How do you how do you provide those opportunities for people to play and to feel um a sense of belonging and to feel a sense of 
this is something that I that I want to continue to do, right? So, um, yeah, we look at that. We look at that now. We look at that all the time. So, I mean, that's what I'll be we'll be working on, and and hopefully, you know, we may we may have changes, we may not, but you know, for us, it's it's always about keeping that funnel as wide as possible. Speaking of funnels, uh, Nolan, I want to ask you how Curling Canada can keep more young players involved in the sport. Once they age out of juniors each year, Canada loses many competitive curlers, great young curlers from its funnel, in part because competing at the elite level in Canada can be cost prohibitive. And the path to the Briar, the Scotties and the Grand Slam events can seem overwhelming. As the incoming CEO, do you see a way to help facilitate the transition of our talented young curlers from the juniors to the men's and women's game? Yeah, I think, you know, you'll, you've, you hear David um, talk about this with, um, since we've hired him and and the a lot of the stuff that he works on and he, he he talks about the daily training environment right you know I'm actually wearing like a a thing that I that I bought from uh, a fight store the Muhammad Ali um, article of clothing which is you know I I think of that quote that he says I you know I didn't he, he didn't he doesn't win when he's under those lights he wins when nobody's watching right and that's i think from a high performance standpoint that's really what we're getting down to is is how do you you know like how do you win at the highest level all that work that you have to put in before and i think when we talk about you know the the cost and the opportunity to compete and all of that stuff again that's one portion of it right that's competition how do we find a way to provide more training opportunities for those athletes so that, you know, when they, you know, maybe when they leave the U21 ranks at that point, then they can, they can still train in a cost effective way to get better until it is, until they then can travel around more and compete more. Right. Um, and, and kind of hit that higher level. I I look at myself, right? Like I didn't I traveled kind of I played with the team in and around Manitoba when I when I first graduated from from the junior ranks. Um even when I first moved out to Alberta, I just kind of traveled around Alberta and I was, you know, still getting my CPA designation and all that other stuff. But when I look at it now, you know, we don't want to lose those kids that, you know, when they're 21, you don't, you know, in 22 you still want to find a way for them to feel like they're getting better, right? And feel like there's a pathway there for them. So for us, we've talked about a few different things. I mean, hopefully we can roll some of them out, you know, in the in this in the near term. Some of it's going to take some more investment from us, but it's how do we find ways to have more training opportunities across the country for more athletes so that when someone first comes out you know and those those opportunities i think are going to provide an an area where not only our our highest level teams in canada can train more it's not like they're on the ice 24 7 right i think for to have more um resources in more places in the country it just opens up and allows more athletes to kind of use those resources and and hopefully some of the younger athletes and and they've they've got a, a way to continue on the pathway with us. 
And finally, Nolan, a few weeks ago, Curling Canada announced the dates for the 2025 Canadian Olympic trials, and many were surprised that Curling Canada chose to hold the trials on the same weekend it has for basically the last three or four Olympic cycles. Can you walk me through the process that led to Curling Canada deciding to leave the Olympic trials in its traditional slot on the calendar, given that there was so much talk after the last Olympics about how it might be preferable for the teams representing Canada at the Olympics if the trials were held further out from the Games? Well, it was a combination of a lot of things. Yeah, we worked through everything with our athlete council, with all of our athletes. Um, You know, we did a a high-performance review where we talked to everybody yeah, there's some of them that said we could we could use more time. Some of them said it's it's not really the time. Like we're we're ready to go. It's some of it is planning. Um, you know, I think the trials are something that's so hard to look at um, and so hard to win that it's you know people almost like they don't want to jinx themselves by looking ahead. Well, all of our teams are looking ahead right now and going, okay, you know, I want to win the Olympics. Okay. That entails me winning the trials. Okay, so what happens after I win the trials, right? What are the what are the what does everything look like for those next you know ten weeks until or eight weeks until I get on a plane? Um, we're actually one of the earliest name. Like, if you actually look at the when athletes are named to the by the Canadian Olympic Committee, we're actually one of the earliest ones. I think. You know, from a, from a trial standpoint, the other big piece of it that we looked at was, okay, do we want to allow the athletes the opportunity to play in mixed doubles and or men's and women's, or do we want to restrict that, right? Um, so, you know, when we went through it, it played into, okay, well, so then when would each of their championships play? Because I don't think we ever want, you know, someone winning the four-person um, discipline to then limit their ability to play in the mixed doubles if they wanted to and i don't we also don't want someone to win the mixed doubles and then you know completely check out of their four-person team because then that's unfair to those other athletes um so you know we had to balance out when things are and and you saw we moved the mixed doubles trials way earlier right and the four-person trials stayed where they were the other piece of it as well for us was um, you know, we look through different options because, yeah, the trials is a is also a big financial driver for Curling Canada. So there was business reasons there that we had to consider. But, you know, we looked at it and we said, okay, so if it's not then, when is it? Okay, well, it, it can't be in November because there's still the pan-continental and the Europeans played then. So, you know, none of our teams want to go to the pan-continental when there's a trials right there. October, early October. Okay, well now we're in a different time frame, and we're we're a little concerned from a business standpoint, but um, we're more concerned with teams having not played already, right? Um, you know, it's it's still early in the season, and access to um, training and facilities is is a little limited still. Then we started looking ahead to the to before that. People have said, we'll run it in at the end of April or in May. Well, okay, now that's sort of out of the curling season. And now, if we were to run a trials the first week of May, we're going to have two teams that just went to the World Championships to earn our right directly into the Olympic Games, 
who have just played 125 or 100, 100 game season and are exhausted at the end of the um you know the world championships and the players championship and then they got to get it cranked up two weeks later with most curling centers in the country taking their ice out for a trials so putting a trials in may isn't going to do us any good because there's no ice in the country and everyone's exhausted from a 100 game season so now we're back in trials is just a year earlier than than they were before so um which is again before we've earned our way directly into the game so you know we looked through all the options but there there wasn't a really good one that solved a lot of our problem and you know we talked to a lot of athletes that were went to the games and a lot of them said i was prepared right um you know just different things happened as to why they maybe didn't medal or why they didn't win gold. But so, yeah, we, we worked through everything and, and, you know, I think we just thought this is our, this is our best option from a entire sport perspective between mixed doubles and four person. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the business of curling Canada. And that does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to Nolan Thiessen for making time to chat with me despite his hectic schedule over the next few weeks. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game podcast, the Rock Logic podcast, and the Curling Legends podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. <laughs>